Introduction Douglas Harding, 1909-2007, wrote what I think is the greatest work of philosophy of the 20th century, The Hierarchy of Heaven and Earth, published in 1952. At present, this is a view shared by few people, because the hierarchy is barely known outside the small circle of those who appreciate Harding, and even fewer within that circle have actually read either the huge original book or the condensed version he wrote afterwards. His better-known, more popular books are those he wrote from the 1960s onwards. I understand that for many people my view will sound like the claim of a deluded disciple, yet I am convinced that eventually history will recognise the extraordinary achievement the hugely important breakthrough of this magnum opus. Harding's view of the cosmos, its structure and functioning, described in the hierarchy with great clarity and with astonishing breadth and depth, is a view that is not only true, but also profoundly good and beautiful. It is a thrilling new departure in the way we see ourselves. Refreshingly modern, it is a science-based reassessment of who and what we are, that amounts to a major leap forward in human consciousness and understanding. It is, as its subtitle boldly declares, a new diagram of man in the universe. It is in this context that these stories are of special interest. If they had been written by someone else, then they would be no more than entertaining reflections on a childhood and youth lived in the early 20th century but they gain in interest and significance because of who wrote them, for they provide an insight into the life and mind of a youngster who later became a great philosopher and spiritual teacher. These stories open an intimate window on Harding's early life. Their autobiographical nature is only thinly disguised. In Mourning for Grandfather, Harding introduces us to his paternal grandfather. What fun they had together! In the Plymouth Brother you meet his father, whose steadfast faith in God, even under threat of death, profoundly inspired his son. In the Peach you witness his mother's anger. In the Stink you are present when it dawns on him that there's more to life than being liked. In Beetles you see how intensely curious he was about the world around him, and how sharply observant about the minutest details. In Red Front, you are caught up in Harding's youthful flirtation with communism. There is also a good deal of honest self-reflection in these pages. In The Flemish Giant, Harding shines a light on dark places in his young soul, and even more so in The Nightmare Knows. In this latter story, he is disturbingly frank about the shame and disgust he felt about his nose. During adolescence, it became the focus of his self-hatred. Few of us go so far, are so brave and candid, as to admit to such mortifying sentiments in public, or indeed are so psychologically self-aware and articulate. At one level, Harding was inspired by a profound curiosity about himself and about life. He had a passionate desire to find out who he was. But it is easy to admit to such admirable feelings. Not so the darker forces that might also be at work. 
The nightmare nose leaves no doubt that the young Harding was from time to time in great pain. He was angry and bitter. Without him being aware at the time of where they were leading, these powerful feelings of unworthiness, self-loathing and alienation played havoc with his life. Wounded, he needed healing. Later, much later, Harding came to appreciate the value of this excruciating, morbid self-consciousness that too often reared its unwelcome head in his youth. He came to see it as a vital, irreplaceable piece of the puzzle that in the end helped steer, or rather drive him to the truth and healing of who he really was. When at last he saw his true self, the face he had hated at times so vehemently was ousted by, in a sense washed clean by, what Zen calls one's bright and charming original face. A curse turned into a blessing, a blessing that Harding then passed on to many others. Harding wrote these stories when he was 26 and 27, 1935 to 36. At this time he was also writing his first book, The Meaning and Beauty of the Artificial. This is a serious, well-researched, well-written, substantial work that explores the artificiality of the dividing line between our bodies and our tools. Harding pointed out that once you realize that you do not stop at your skin, once you have crossed over the apparent frontier between self and not-self, then there are no further frontiers that you cannot also cross, till in the end you find yourself including everything. The many hours of solitary work, of sustained focus that went into writing this first book and these stories, are testament to the youthful Harding's self-discipline and his ambition. As well as wanting to know who and what he was, the young Harding also dreamed of being a great man, a great writer and a great philosopher, and was determined to do everything in his power to achieve his goal. Even so, his focus on writing did not mean he neglected his professional work or shunned relationships. After graduating in architecture from University College in London in 1931, Harding worked in the city, after which he returned to Suffolk in 1933 to join a firm in Ipswich. The warmth and respect his architectural colleagues felt for him became apparent when he applied for and got a job in India managing a large team in a major architectural firm in Calcutta. In January 1937, shortly before he sailed for India with his pregnant wife, the secretary of the Suffolk Association of Architects was instructed to write to you to say that your resignation was accepted with great regret and that the members wish to put on record their appreciation of your services so freely given. They would very much miss your help in this work which had been of the greatest value. Harding had earned a reputation for being helpful and reliable. He was well liked. These stories also show this attractive side of the young Harding, his generosity, his understanding and warmth, his compassion, and his humour. Read Gerald's Thunderbolt, and you will laugh alongside Gerald as Gerald gets the last laugh. A recurring theme in Harding's life and work was his amazement that there is anything at all. Why isn't there just nothing? 
How did existence, or the one, or awareness, or whatever you want to call it, how did it launch itself into being from the darkest night of non-being? Or, put differently, how did you come to be? You as who you really, really are. After this impossible feat of self-origination, of conjuring yourself out of nothing without help, of spontaneously appearing in this moment now, what is not possible? Throughout all that happens abides this mystery, this miracle, this blessing, the fact that one is, that the one is. Harding the adult never tired of expressing his wonder at, his praise and gratitude for, the one's achievement of being. But an embryonic awareness of this mystery was already alive in Harding the child. If you want to hear that consciousness stirring, described by the twenty-something-year-old Harding as he looks back into his childhood, then stand with the father of the man, the twelve-year-old Harding by the graveside of his beloved grandfather, and listen to his thoughts. At the graveside he had stood next to Aunt Abigail and heard the parson read the burial service. He liked the words, I am the resurrection and the life and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He liked them partly because, as it happened, he had just read the same words in the tale of two cities, and partly because they were so grand in themselves. As a matter of fact, he liked nearly every text that began, I am. No matter what it went on to say, or what the exact meaning was, Philip was impressed. Directly, he began to wonder what the words meant. They seemed to be nonsense. But if he just listened to them, they gave him a curious sensation. During the reading of the burial service, he had been obliged to blink his eyes, to swallow repeatedly, and deliberately to contemplate the skull and crossbones carved upon a nearby headstone. Harding gathered his stories together and named the collection after one of them. The Crimson Tiger. This collection was not published in Harding's lifetime, though one of the stories, Beatles, was published in India in 1943. Apart from that, as far as I know, none of the other stories have seen the light of day, so it is a delight to make them available now. After reading them, you will know and understand Douglas Harding in a new and more intimate way. Richard Lang